0: Sri Lankan British astronomer, astrobiologist, co-proponent with the late Sir Fred Hoyle of the theory of cometary panspermia, Chandra Wickramasinghe is a pioneer of the new science of astrobiology. Chandra Wickramasinghe received his early education at Royal College Colombo and the University of Ceylon. In 1961, he went to Cambridge in the UK where he began his lifelong collaboration with Sir Fred Hoyle. Professor Wick Remesinger was a fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge from 1963 to 1973. Professor at University College, Cardiff and Cardiff University from 1973 to 2011. Currently, he is an honorary professor at the University of Buckingham, UK. Professor Chandra Wick thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Chandra, I want to start by asking you this question. Why is it we do not often hear about your groundbreaking studies on the cosmic origins of life?
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a long-standing uh, kind of... Uh, uh, a silence that has uh, come over this. The, the logical conclusion from uh, my half a century of scientific work is that there is no question whatsoever that life did start on the Earth. It did not start on the Earth for sure, and um, so this is uh, th- this is the uh, the heresy because the standard point of view that people have grown up with every single textbook in biology, te- biology tells you that life started in a primordial soup on the earth and so on. So we've grown up with that, and scientists have puffed this theory up into a huge uh, uh, sort of almost an edifice that is now very difficult to break down. That's the that's problem, and, and the evidence is compelling at the moment for life not being of terrestrial origin. Uh, I think that comets brought life to Earth in the form of bacteria and viruses from the depths of space, and uh, the continued injections, introductions of life in this form uh, of bacteria and viruses essentially uh, led to the whole process of evolution that we see here on our planet, and the process that led eventually to ourselves coming into existence uh but uh, it's been resisted i think there's a cultural taboo against any challenge of the standard point of view in relation to the earthbound theory of the origin of life uh i hope this would eventually die die down and that facts would be respected but uh, it's still a long way from that in 2021 and present day the idea that life came from space, or life can be in any way connected with deep space, with the universe at large, is uh, an absolute heresy. Uh, And irrespective of all the uh, evidence that we've accumulated is still regarded as heresy. So we are heretics, we who propagate this theory, who support this theory are heretics, and we are treated in the way that heretics have always been treated, or that is to say, uh, as you said, why don't... Haven't you heard this? we are deliberately ignored sometimes though not so often nowadays we are persecuted as well and I should tell you that I think uh, your listeners would probably uh, like to hear this story the, the pre-socratic uh, philosopher Anaxagoras, who essentially was responsible for enunciating the the, the panspermia, theory that uh, we have been all working on for many decades now. Uh, He also proposed that the sun was not a god but a red-hot stone and the moon was made of just a lump of earth and for this heresy he was essentially banished from Athens, from his native state. So that's the kind of uh, punishment that uh, heretics endured and I suppose uh, uh punishment is mild compared to uh, Giordano Bruno, who in 1600 was burned to death uh, for offending the the papacy by saying that there is that there are many planets with uh, life on them and so on. And uh, well, this, this this has gone on. This goes on, and uh, it's, it hasn't come as a surprise to me or to my collaborators who keep on working on, on what we regard as being the absolute facts of mm. uh, the universe.
0: Can you describe the first ideas and evidence that led you to conclude that the universe is teeming with life?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think 50 years ago, if you told me this, if um, Mike told me that the universe is teeming with life, that viruses were all out there and so on, I would also have shrunk in disbelief. It's not something that you take on lightly. And you need evidence uh, to support that kind of uh, point of view. And it took me and my long list of collaborators uh, uh, to several decades and a long series of astronomical discoveries, astronomical observations, detailed analysis and calculations to reach this conclusion. So it was not by any means, reached lightly. Uh, it, ca- it came, in fact, in several s- steps, very discrete, definite steps. In 1976, which goes back a long time, we had evidence for large quantities of organic molecules, right? So these are combinations of carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and so on, into, assembled into long chains, which are called hydrocarbons, and also double ring molecules. This is way back, way back in 1976. We accumulated this data uh, from astronomy and published it in Nature and so on. And um, these were uh, disputed in some circles, but they were also praised as being a major breakthrough in, in the chemistry of uh, interstellar space. In fact, we had uh, molecules that resembled, or we are, claimed at that time to identify molecules that resembled chlorophyll, the the light-gathering molecule that is uh, very crucial for life on the Earth. Uh, So all these molecules were there, and double ring molecules, such as uh, occur in DNA, we found uh, evidence for that. So this was uh, uh, what was happening in 1976, and gradually... Cosmic biology was beginning to look more and more plausible. Life was, life molecules at least, the molecules, components of life, were found everywhere in the cosmos, in the deepest recesses of the cosmos. Then what we did for the next um, four or five years was to study the way in which cosmic dust, and cosmic dust is what you see in the dark, Patches between stars in the Milky Way. If you look at the Milky Way on a dark um, night, you see sort of band of stars stretching from horizon to horizon. And in between that band of stars, you see huge shapes of dark striations, elephant's trunks, and you resembling elephant's trunks. So these are dense clouds of cosmic dust. Uh, so astronomers, for several decades up to 1970 were were struggling to understand what these uh, dust clouds were made of, what is the dust that fills uh, cosmic space so profusely. Now, what we did in in between um, 1976 and 1982 was to do a lot of astronomical observations. We collected lots of astronomical data. We did lots of calculations. And we came to a rather startling conclusion that the dust that you see in the dark clouds of space is composed, is comprised of two populations of organic particles. The first population has sizes, individual particles as sizes exactly the same, same as the sizes of bacteria. And the second was also organic particles that had to... Possess sizes of viruses nano nanometer sizes, so this is the the um, uh, the situation that we were facing in the nineteen late 1970s then in 1982, we had a really startling breakthrough. We said that if these particles in space in deep space and they were not a trivial amount of, uh, of material there it, the material in the form of the dust in space amounts to about one tenth of all the matter in the entire galaxy. So it's a significant proportion of the the mass of our galaxy is made up of these dust particles that, as I said, were uh, we inferred had sizes of bacteria and viruses, two different populations. Now, in 1982, uh, we Conducted an experiment in the laboratory to to get a absorption profile in the infrared. This is in the deep red, further than the red, in wavelength longer than red red wavelength uh, of bacteria as they would uh, be in interstellar space. We had this as sort of a profile, a pattern that we had to look for in astronomical data to see whether this particular pattern was reproduced in astronomy. Now, when we made this uh, experiment in the laboratory, my my colleagues and a student named uh, Al Mufti, who uh, did the experiment, uh, we approached many observatories around the world and asked if they could look at the deepest uh, sources of infrared light in the galaxy and see whether this pattern of bacterial material is is there or not. And very few people to, uh, decided to take this seriously, but it, as it happened, I had a younger brother who was professor of mathematics at the Australian National University, his name is Dial, and he and a colleague, David Allen, used the the then most powerful telescope in the world, which is the Anglo-Australian telescope, to uh, to do this uh, observation, astronomical observation, to look for the signature of bacterial dust that we had predicted. So uh, the weeks went by, and we were looking, we were waiting for the result, and suddenly, Dahl sends us a fax to UK, to Cardiff, uh, with a spectrum that matched precisely the spectrum of the laboratory uh, um, sample of bacteria. So you here you have a prediction, a definite prediction, uh, which we made, and then you have an astronomical observation that matched ab- absolutely precisely, point by point it matched. So this was, uh, was uh, we were dumbfounded by this, and we published it, and then we had lots of responses. Of course, there was skepticism, because... Uh, as I said earlier, life in space is still a heresy. So they had to wriggle out of this and say, maybe uh, the the stuff there looks like bacteria, but they're not bacteria. They're just, just mixtures of the components of bacteria, the molecular components of bacteria. So it, it went on and on like that. 1976, another really interesting development took place. Uh, Halley's Comet... Uh, which is a very famous comet, um, returned uh, in, to, to Perihelion to, to, to be close to the sun. Uh, it's a, a comet that has a period of 86 years. So it came in uh, 1976, and uh, this was in the space age. Uh, the European Space Agency had a mission to to examine it at close quarters, so it had, it had a... Um, a, a spacecraft that went to flow, essentially flew by it. And so a lot of data was gathered from that encounter, from the Halley Comet encounter of 1976. And again, we had predicted that if there were bacteria, then there would be certain patterns to be seen. And exactly those patterns were seen. Predicted The predicted patterns of bacteria were found in the tail of Halley's Comet. And this again was uh, the observation of that was in, in involved my brother in Australia and a lot of other people as well. So it was um, th- this was uh, absolute shock to us as well as to other people. But, um, uh, but, but, the, but, but all of these things didn't have much of an impact on the very hardened establishment of science that had said there can be no life outside. So these had to be um, life-like material produced somehow to mimic the properties of biology. Oh. So this, this went on and on, and it kept on um, uh, right through the decades. We had um, a, a long series of uh, predictions that we made of the, uh, the life from space model we proposed Comets as being the amplifiers, the distributors of life through the cosmos. We made very many predictions. Every single prediction over the past four decades has been verified. So um, uh, this is what where we are now. We have a, a theory that has uh, um, that has been amply uh, verified. Predictions have been verified, but still there is a a very strong resistance to accepting it um, uh, as as hard
0: fact what are the implications of your fundamental findings
1: well I think the the whole of uh, life has to be regarded as being a cosmic phenomenon uh, life could not have arisen on the earth except for for the deep cosmos providing the the complex arrangements of molecules that make, make up life. The probability of uh, uh, primordial soup that people are talking about producing anything like a bacterium, anything like uh, DNA or, or the amino acids needed for, for a bacterium to, to function, the, the probability is absolutely minuscule, zero, precisely zero. And it is this improbability that we've been stressing for nearly three or four decades now, and um, it is not still registering with the mainstream astronomers. They are still continuing to try to mimic in the laboratory the process by which life might have started from non-life in a terrestrial organic soup on the Earth. And it's been a dismal failure for nearly 40, 50 years. Uh, so so that's uh, th- that's where we are, and the evidence that is mounting also from uh, geology. We know that the oldest evidence for life on Earth dates back to uh, something like 4.2 billion years ago, and this was a time when we know for certain that the Earth was being pounded by comet impacts. There couldn't have been a quiescent uh, period in that during that epoch, for it's called the Hadian epoch, the epoch of hell on the earth, and it's in rocks that formed at that time that you have the oldest evidence of biology on our planet. So comets certainly seem to have brought the first life onto the earth, and um, uh, the continuing injection of bacteria and viruses, I should say over the next 4.2 billion years is what gives the whole uh, panorama of life that we have here on our planet. If not for that, life would not have evolved even up to the stage of a single cell and certainly not beyond the stage of a single cell. It needed the, the whole universe to to cooperatively produce the information that is needed for the first life, and for all of evolution. And this is dispersed now, the components of um, uh, of the evolutionary process are dispersed, I think, in the form of viruses right through interstellar and interstellar space, right through the universe. Bill Gates was asked um, probably two weeks
0: ago if he was concerned the origins of COVID-19. He said, no, I'm not Uh, Shari Markson in Australia said it came from Wuhan, from a lab leak. Uh, Chinese are very naughty. Um, We have Uh, all sorts of theories floating around. The origins of COVID-19, why is it so important
1: to know? I think it's part of the the story of uh, life on Earth. Uh, My conviction is that viral... Pandemics in human beings are caused by viruses and have continued to um, cause pandemics right through uh, our history. Uh, we have a, whole, a lot of epidemics that are well documented in historical record. We have the plague of Athens, for instance, the plague of Justinian, and, uh, and, and most recently the Spanish flu. And I think all of the evidence, certainly in relation to the Spanish flu, which is in 1918, 1919, there is absolutely no uh, possibility that this was uh, a virus that came uh, essentially on the earth, came from China or wherever, and then spread around the earth. Every bit of evidence that is uh, documented shows that th- there was a component of this virus that it was being essentially carried around in the global weather system and uh, fell wherever conditions, uh, local conditions were appropriate. For instance, it's been um, stated, recorded, quite uh, carefully recorded and accurately recorded, that the first outbreaks of the lethal second wave of this uh, 1918-1919 Spanish flu pandemic occurred in Boston and bombay on the same day in 1918 uh, there was no air travel there was no way in which uh, humans could have transmitted the virus from boston to bombay or bombay to boston so so this is clear evidence that uh, uh, that the virus was uh, deposited from the sky in our own experience uh, i should maybe recall a very very significant event that happened in the course of our studies of uh, cosmic life. Uh, In 1977, there was an influenza pandemic that was uh, called the red flu pandemic, It was caused by a a subtype of the influenza virus known as H1N1. And that virus was not around on the Earth for 30-odd years. It was unknown on the Earth. There was no... Possibility that uh, school kids, for instance, school children would have been exposed to this virus in their lifetime. So Fred Hoyle and I thought this was an ideal opportunity to to regard the school children as detectors of this new H1N1 uh, pandemic virus. And we went to all of the schools, the boarding schools and the um, public schools in England and Wales and collected an enormous amount of data on the timing of the attacks on different schools, on the timing of attacks in various uh, houses of schools, because, uh, for example, in in some of the posh schools in England, Eton, they have many boarding houses, and uh, the the boys are divided into, um, into these houses. And so we were able to, uh, to determine how many cases, how many children, boys went down with uh, influenza, when they went down with influenza in the different houses. And all of this data we were able to analyze and show quite convincingly that person-to-person spread, although it happened, was not the major process by which this influenza spread. Amongst the susceptible detectors, as we uh, like to think of them, the children, school children. And um, uh, so, th- so this was a, a, a strong indication that there was a component of person to person infection, but an overwhelming um, process that uh, dominated the whole uh, pandemic was just higgledy piggledy infall of the virus from the sky. And uh, from the atmosphere, and so this is the uh, this was the the start of our confidence on the whole theory of viruses being transported in the global weather system and falling onto the earth um, in in a sort of very patchy way, and that's what's happened in the case of the COVID nineteen as well. I think I mean yeah. there's no question that COVID nineteen is infectious. It's uh, it's it's an infective agent, so it can pass from one person to another, uh, and that has surely happened. But uh, in order to explain all of the the data, Professor Steele and myself and a whole lot of colleagues have uh, examined the totality of data available on the COVID nineteen pandemic, and we conclude that a major effect is the. Infall the continuing infall from the, uh, from the global weather system of a virus that was introduced almost certainly I think into the global weather system from outside, and we have tentatively identified a, a meteor uh, event in China in uh, 2019, I think it was uh, that uh, could have triggered this. So this is the uh, the story, and I think uh, uh, just quite apart from the, the present pandemic, the, I think the whole history of human civilization over thousands of years have been punctuated by a long series of uh, pandemics, a long series of meteor strikes as well, meteorite strikes mm-hmm. and pandemics. The rise and fall of empires, I believe, has been more to do with this natural sequence of events with, with the recurrence of pandemics and with the misdemeanors of rulers and tyrants. Well, that's, that's certainly my point of view. Mm. What do and they mean? I should also say that uh, this is for viruses in our, um, in our immediate uh, uh, vicinity, viruses that mm. cause diseases like influenza and COVID and so on. But since the human genome was fully sequenced, in the year 2000, we also know now for absolute certain that our DNA and the DNA of all our sort of primate uh, relations, as it were, evolutionary relations, uh, the, the, is plattered with the residues of viruses, right? Uh, There's uh, retroviruses that uh, Ted Steele has been working on and other people have been working on. And these are all over the place in our DNA. In fact, most of our DNA is not to nothing to do with our existence, nothing to do with um, useful things that the DNA is doing, but with, with dead DNA. And these resulted, these inserts, the retroviral inserts, herbs and herbs and so on, resulted almost certainly from past pandemics. And um, uh, with the DNA sequencing of our of our, answer, of our primate ancestors, it is also becoming clear that right through our evolution, not through our, not just through our history of thousands of years, but through our entire evolutionary history of a few million years as primates, uh, with there have been a long series of viral uh, pandemics, and these have left their mark uh, mm. on the DNA of creatures that... Uh, uh, exist at the moment on the earth in different uh, uh, different forms. Why do many pandemics of the type we see with, say,
0: COVID-19 seem to begin first in China?
1: I think that is very easy to understand. China um, is eastwards of the highest mountain range in the world, which is the Himalayas. The Himalayas essentially punctures a hole in the troposphere, and all of the weather patterns around that area is controlled by this event of uh, Himalayas puncturing a hole in the troposphere. So anything that is brought in from from the stratosphere into the troposphere tends to be carried first into the um, plains of China, uh, that's the way that the, the weather system works. So I think there's no difficulty, as far as I, can, I am concerned, to understand why the first uh, strikes for many of these viruses, uh, like influenza, all the new subtypes of influenza, seem to come from China. It's not because the Chinese live in close proximity to animals, which is the, the standard um, story. It's because of the Himalayas puncturing a hole, and it's because that many of these viruses have an extraterrestrial origin. They come from comets, they are deposited into the troposphere, into the troposphere, into the global weather systems, and they are carried in, uh, first in the winds into China. What's your assessment of the
0: scientific progress in your lifetime as a scientist?
1: Well, I think the the, 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 the progress has been enormous. And when I grew up in uh, nearly seven decades or eight decades ago, uh, there were no jet aircraft, there were no communication satellites, uh, and so on. So all of these have happened in the last eight decades. So technical advancement uh, at that kind of level has happened at a tremendous rate. Uh, And then there's um, genetic space exploration has progressed enormously. Uh, Genetic engineering has progressed, uh, biotechnology, medical science, the average life expectancy of of humans has gone up significantly. And, of course, most importantly, the way that we are now communicating uh, across this uh, from the U.K. to Australia at the moment is due to the Internet and to computers. And so the advancements in things like that have have been really tremendous. I think the next decades we'll see more progress of a similar kind. Uh, There will be more sophisticated uh, computers. There would be uh, better biotechnology and so on. But unless the paradigm shift that is being halted is um, essentially... Completed the paradigm shift from uh, earth-centered life to cosmic-centered life. I think we would be uh, there would be a stalemate in progress in relation to a lot of disciplines within biology and um, within astronomy as well, within astrobiology. I think the the fact that the um, the ideas of life from space is being resisted is partly due to innate conservatism. Human beings don't like to change their mind. They don't like to change their houses even. We don't, it's all very traumatic if we have to move house or to move country uh, at any stage in our life. So there, there is an innate conservatism in humans that is preventing us from changing from the Earth-centered to the cosmic-centered viewpoint. But more importantly, in my view, is that the, the cosmic theory of life has been identified as something that is alien to um, uh, to eurocentric culture to western culture to christendom even and that has been uh, a silent obstacle to the process of accepting facts for what we are what they are mm. uh, and as, as I said the number of predictions that have been made on the basis of the cosmic theory of life, that have been been fulfilled, that have been verified, is growing ever larger, and yet the resistance still persists. I -hmm. think this is part of innate conservatism. It's it's part of also uh, an imperial instinct. I think the the instinct that science um, in Western tradition developed in a Eurocentric culture uh, in the age of the Enlightenment, and um, the uh, I think, well, in my view, decolonization of science is is a process that is long overdue, and that is one of the uh, uh, one of the effects, the color, that sort of identification of the idea of life being cosmic as being an alien concept, alien to Eurocentric culture. This is has to be overcome.
0: In this day and age of COVID-19 and the hysteria that surrounds it, science seems to have been thrown by the wayside. And there is only one narrative. So, I mean, just, just recently, uh, even uh, YouTube took off anything that said anything bad or anything that was contrary to the narrative about the vaccine. So that, that discussion is now is almost gone. Well, I
1: think censorship is really very Mm. strong, Mm. and that has to be overcome. I think there's no science that could proceed uh, sensibly with uh, such uh, strong cultural obstacles, strong censorship to ideas that are not uh, acceptable. I mean, the idea that the uh, the virus was, uh, this current COVID-19 virus came from Animals is is just laughable because if you think if you work out the uh, probabilities of the the um, the bat virus going yeah. through uh, pangolin and achieving the kind of number of mutations that are needed to reach the the human uh, variety of this virus, it, it is just impossible to have happened in all the time that's available in the universe. So I think one should really reject that absolutely. Uh, the the other possibility that's that's being aired is that it's an artificial virus, and I don't really go for that in very enthusiastic terms. I think there is also uh, one has to rea- realize that uh, we have the technology to do dreadful things now, and that mm-hmm. we have groups of people who are who are sufficiently uh, minded, if you like to put it that way, to do uh, things that are um, uh, to society, to humans that are almost suicidal. This is not absolutely impossible. But I think as far as the origin of the COVID virus is concerned, it is part of a natural process that has gone on for for thousands of years. And uh, why invoke any other process than, uh, than is involved in these other earlier viruses? I think the most natural explanation to go for and to explore scientifically is the the idea that the virus came from space like all other viruses did, and uh, all other viruses that also contributed to our evolution. Mm. Uh, We've got to remember that uh, if not for viruses, we would not have evolved beyond this level of a single microbe. So viruses Mm. are bad for us in, in, in a sense, but they're also crucial for the evolution of life. I was talking to a, a friend of mine
0: in um, in uh, Utah, in uh, Park City, about about life and the start of life. Um, and we just and I said I was going to going to be uh, talking with you uh, later on in the day. Um, and he said, Look, I would love to know what you th- what your thoughts are on the beginning of life, because you know we talked about you know all these different theories uh, as much as we could, because." One is an accountant or a CPA, and I'm me, so um, I have limited knowledge on these things. But you always, you know, nice discussion over a glass of red if possible. The, we went right back to the start, and I said, look, you know, he said maybe it was a big bang, maybe it was that, maybe it was that. And I said to him, but what started that? So I, the question I pose is how could something start from nothing and does that leave open uh you know because you're a scientist you you know so from your point of view does it leave open that uh there is a god or there is not a god because and then that itself makes it hard to to understand because reminds me of a story i, I was taught at school that the boy was sitting on the beach digging a hole try and he's just putting water in in this um philosopher walked past him and said what are you doing and the boy said i'm trying to put the ocean into the into this hole and the philosopher at this stage is trying to work out the the start of life what it was all about and the boy in the, uh, the and the philosopher said but you can't put in all the ocean into that hole because there's too much it won't fit and the boy replied it's the same thing you're trying to do so <laughs> can i ask you is there yeah you know, from the very beginning of life yeah you know, the yeah you know, the molecule, what started the molecule?
1: I think all of the basic processes of physics, all of the basic components of physics, all of the basic components that make up uh, life, they have always been there. That would be my personal belief. I don't have any uh any science to back it up at the moment, mm. but in the current fashion is to say that the whole universe began with a single Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Now, there's no question that there was an event of which we are the inheritors 13.8 billion years ago later. Uh, if you take the material of all, all our galaxies and so on, and uh, the way that they're moving um, away at the moment. I mean, this universe seems to be expanding at a, mm. at an, an ever-increasing rate. So there is a beginning of the material that you see around us. But was that the absolute beginning? Was there mm. a, a real, definite beginning of the universe? This is a question that is still up for grabs. There mm. are astronomical observations that have come uh, in the last uh, two or three years that are presenting a very serious challenge. We are finding galaxies at maybe a few hundred thousand years after the so-called Big Bang origin of the universe. They should not be there. And they are are there. Nevertheless, there's no question that they are there. Mm. And this has raised um, many questions. Was the Big Bang just part of a a whole sequence of similar events that um, mm. that continued forever or would continue forever. And scientists like Roger Penrose, Nobel laureate Roger Penrose, has posed this question. Was there uh, a sequ- sequence? Was it, Is it an oscillating universe that goes from mm. bang to, to crunch to bang and so on? Mm. And mm. Um, so this is still an open question. I, I would like to... Think of a universe that has no beginning and no end, and the Big Bang mm. was just one local event. And if you ask when the um, uh, when the process of life started, I think the life, that life and the components of matter, or the fundamental particles, the laws of physics, and so on, were always there. They mm. are part of uh, of an infinite eternal universe. This this is a personal point of view. Mm. There's no. Mm. Hard evidence that I can say to support it, but there is a growing body of evidence that says that the Big Bang is not uh, not the last word on the yeah. beginnings of the universe or the beginnings of life within it. I mean, if you go back to uh, um, in history, or a few th- few thousand years ago, uh, it was quite a different story, isn't it? I mean, there was there was yeah. a a theory of the universe where it was uh, considered to be a, a, a huge globe carried on the back of a, of a white elephant the white elephant riding on a tortoise the tortoise swimming in in a sea and so on and all all of these have been have been mm. uh, suggested by uh, not by scientists but by uh, by thinkers by poets by philosophers and mm. so on
0: maybe we were been indoctrinated or taught very hard for us to Imagine there's no beginning that there was a beginning and the, and an, and the end because we all you have know, start and finish, we all believe that. but to to think about something not having a beginning and most likely not having an end, yeah. it's it's a very hard thing to comprehend, isn't it?
1: It's a very hard thing to comprehend. and in fact it's, uh, I found it I found it easier to deal with that because I come from a, a Buddhist background and mm-hmm. buddhism was the it was uh, it's essentially acknowledged to be the philosophy or the religion that introduced the concept of infinity right mm. so something going on forever uh, is something that is really um, natural to, to to an eastern way of thinking to a, to a westerner where in a judeo christian tradition this is alien and so this is another problem that one has to face Cultural objections, cultural resistance to ideas that have been deeply ingrained uh, in certain cultures. For instance, in the Judeo-Christian culture, the creation Mm. is a discrete event. There was a God, there was a creation, and so on. So that creation was supposed to be centered on the earth, but now we have moved moved away from that with the advancements in science, and we think the creation was the creation of the universe, the Big Bang maybe but um, is that the, the last word i think i think not i think the the whole situation of the origin of life the origin of the universe is, is still up for grabs that i don't think we have definite answers but what we know for sure is that our existence the existence of life on earth is intimately connected with the universe at large if not for life being distributed in the form of bacteria and viruses throughout the galaxy, throughout the cosmos, we would not be here. That mm. I am absolutely certain of, and I think that is a paradigm shift that has to happen if we are going to make further progress in biology, further progress in science. To resist that is is just uh, absolutely crazy, and it would hinder... The, the further development of science. Do you still have, I mean, this is just, um, this is a wonderful
0: conversation. Do you still have, going right back to when you started or when you wanted to be a scientist, to now, do you still have that, I suppose, fire in the belly still?
1: Yeah, I, I, I still like to know where we came from mm. and uh, how did it all happen. I think I have over, decades I've uh, lived for eight decades now and over the last five decades of active science I think I've come closer to answering some of these questions but I would like to know more I think mm. there's always more to learn there's more to, mm. to uh, more questions to ask and, and so I keep on going and uh, I find that uh, this is going to be the case for Generations to come, there will be no final answer to many of these questions. Mm. Uh, that I think that is all the better for for the progress of science. We need to have mm. f- go forward with uh, with new questions to answer.
0: As we wind this conversation up, the health of science at the moment, with all you know, we have you know, theories on climate change, or whether it's a theory or just a, a narrative, which is different whether we have the theory or the narrative on COVID, uh, just on all sorts of things. And it seems to be that the, the health of science is, is waning somewhat.
1: I think so. I think it's waning partly because of the, the impact of, uh, of big money. Uh, in the old days, a philosopher or scientist could do his thing in isolation or in a small group, and he didn't require... Uh, huge funds, huge uh, resources to do his uh, job. But now, to to, to succeed in, in any scientific venture, you need uh, maybe big teams of scientists, and you often need very expensive equipment. And if that is not accessible to individuals, I think it's not accessible. We don't have uh, people who are rich enough to to own accelerators or to to have machines to decipher or decode DNA. We need uh, societal support. And that's where the problem arises. The, uh, the censorship that is enforced on, on a group of people who are wanting to make progress, uh, unless they conform to some existing paradigm, that is a serious problem for the future progress of science. We need... And independence of thought, independence of action, and um, innovation to go ahead, independent of all the constraints of powerful bodies of ac- academia or academies, and uh, and uh, the financial constraints are very serious for mm. big science, and that that's that's going to be a problem.
0: Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe, thank you very much, truly, and it's totally enjoyable conversation. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you.